0: Welcome to the New South Wales Department of Education Literacy and Numeracy podcast. I'm Shannon Salvestro, Literacy Coordinator, K-12. In the podcast today, we have travelled to Blackheath Public School and we've invited Kate Blackwell. Hello, Kate. Hello. So I thought a a podcast episode would be a way to tap into some of that knowledge that's out there. So Kate's going to talk to us about the science of reading, some science behind reading. And it's just, it is important to note that, you know, this isn't Kate's own work, but a a bit of a summary of the things that Kate has learnt. So Kate, first of all, tell me,
1: what Mm -hmm. is cognitive neuroscience? Okay, cognitive neuroscience is the study of the brain and the components of the brain and how they interact to learn things. And it's relatively new in the way that imaging has improved so much that we can now see into the brain with uh, functional MRI and other imaging so that we can see what the brain is doing when it's exposed to different stimuli, when it hears a word, when it reads a word we can see exactly what's going on in that brain. And this is really important to understand how people acquire reading, how they acquire language. and it has also told us a lot about what happens when this doesn't happen as we would expect it to happen.
0: So advances in technology have done (laughs) wonderful things. So, um, but then how did you decide, oh, this is something I want to know more about?
1: Well, I have a child who did not develop reading as expected. Uh So she started to have that pattern of reading failure that is familiar to many, I'm sure where she struggled she worked hard to be just below average and then in year three the wheels well and truly fell off Mm. and i didn't quite understand what was going on and as a teacher and as a parent i wanted to understand how to help and so i took myself off to seminars and i listened to speakers and i read books and i came across the researchers, Stanislas um Professor Marianne Wolfe, mm-hmm. and a wonderful American academic called Mark Seidenberg. And it started to make a bit more sense to me what was going on.
0: Okay, so you tapped into some research. So what did you learn? Tell me something you found out.
1: Well, I learned that reading is not a natural process. It's not something mm. that will happen automatically where language, if you hang around with other people and you listen to them speak, you'll pick it up. Whereas reading is not like that, there is no genetic pathway, it's kind of like swimming where you have to be taught the different bits in order to be able to swim. And I also learnt that if humans have been around for 50,000 years, then we have been reading for, the most evidence we have is about 6,000 years, whether mm-hmm. we can prove that writing has been around in some form. Then we haven't been reading and writing for very long and our brains have had to create a way of doing this new thing, this amazing thing. We are the only species on earth that does this thing. It is an amazing it's thing. It's amazing. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And it's amazing when it works and it's amazing when it doesn't work. <laughs> for different reasons. And for different reasons, yeah. <laughs> so Stanislas Tehan has this evolutionary theory of reading, where his research has suggested that Old parts of the brain can form new new connections and new pathways to repurpose and enable us to read instead of having to, you know, entirely reinvent the brain. So you're saying that
0: brains have found a new way for using old parts of the brain that weren't being used? Is that they
1: were but, being used, but, but now they're being used for in new a things way. in a different way. Uh-huh. Yes, so, and that is relying... On the idea that brains can change Mm. and we know that brains can change Mm. we need to build those pathways we need to make those connections with those brains so that they can acquire reading and we know that that circuit will be strong and we also know that some brains will not develop that circuit in a typical way
0: so what kind of brains won't develop it
1: A dyslexic brain. Ah, so why is a
0: dyslexic brain different? Why is that why is it working differently?
1: If you had an image of a word and you had an -er, FMRI, you could see that word traveling through the brain and using these different pathways. Most of those pathways are on the left side of your brain. And Mm -hmm. the research has shown that we can track and predict that pathway and the reading circuit is almost in that way a visible thing. In a dyslexic brain, that circuit goes off onto its own little journey (laughs) Mm. and it can go over to the right hemisphere and it can use a different part of the brain, which doesn't sound like it would cause that, you know, much of an issue, except when you you think that, the processing of that one word by a typically developing brain might take 100, 200 milliseconds. But that little journey to wherever it's going (laughs) in the dyslexic brain can take up to 400 milliseconds Mm. which once again you think oh that's not too bad Mm. but if that's one phoneme and then you think about a whole page of text Mm. so that little dyslexic brain is having to concentrate so much harder for so much longer and work harder get tired Mm. and lose meaning Mm. as just reading that text takes so much effort Mm.
0: So, how does that help us to teach like, all kids to read?
1: Well, the word that's being used a little bit is cerebro oh, wow. meaning that there are different ways that brains can be organised. So, a dyslexic brain is, is organised a different way than a typically developing brain. And I also find it amazing that in different languages, different dyslexic brains use different things again. So... As a species, we've needed these different brains, and that's been fabulous for innovation and for entrepreneurship, but it's dyslexic brain is not so great for print. And so that brain needs to be taught in a specific way that helps all students. The research has shown specific components that should should be part of reading instruction that will target those areas that will make reading instruction the most effective. They're not news to anyone who's been paying attention to any form of reading research for years, but in some ways they did come as news to me in how explicit it needs to be taught. I thought I was explicit. A dyslexic brain will need a lot more exposure to the same component than a typically developing brain. So if you break down the components of what should be part of reading instruction. Once again, not a shock. Phonemes. The smallest units of sounds students need to be taught this very explicitly. Orthographic patterns. Writing the words, forming the letters correctly, writing the words as evidence that the, the actual process of writing the word develops the letter sound knowledge better than typing it into a computer. And semantics is hugely important. Understanding the meanings of words, having the background knowledge, and making the connections with that reading circuit so that the circuit can draw on that knowledge and fire really quickly. So the more a child knows about a word, the more connections they can make, the quicker that processing is going to be. Syntax, structuring sentences correctly with the correct grammar. And finally, morphology, understanding how words and sounds can be manipulated and those units of meaning and playing with those words is hugely important as well. So if you know that your program needs to have these explicit components, you also need to assess them because by assessing them, you'll be able to highlight any deficits and target that deficit with your instruction rather than just throwing everything at someone who's having trouble with reading and just hoping something will stick.
0: When we're assessing, we're checking and we're getting that information about what's going on for a student, what happens when something does go wrong and when we do need to
1: um, address a particular need? Well, I think to understand that multiple exposures to whatever that component was is probably the easiest way to ensure that the student will develop the skills, develop the circuit in that area because different brains will need different numbers of exposures. And a dyslexic brain or a brain with working memory issues will need more exposures than a typical brain. So if your typical brain needs to hear the, you know, k sound four times in a week, your dyslexic brain will need it 40. And that has huge implications for your instruction. So if you're able to target which students in your class have trouble with their phonemic awareness, you can understand that those students will need a lot more practice, a lot more time than the student who just picked it up.
0: Mm. Mm. And I guess um, being able to get on top of that early is important as well?
1: Absolutely. Um, I know from my own daughter, I felt something was wrong Mm. in year one because I wasn't seeing what I was seeing in my classroom with most of my students. If you keep thinking about that reading circuit idea and think that no, waiting and seeing is not gonna work, I need to get those neural pathways surging and firing and working early. Yeah,
0: important. So tell me about the impact that digital texts are now having on our brains.
1: Digital texts are really interesting yeah, because we already we already know that the brain's the brain can change. The brain has the capacity to change when it's exposed to new things. And there's a growing body of evidence that digital devices are changing the way our reading brain develops and reading brain circuitry. So and whilst this might not be a terrible thing, Professor Wolf has some real concerns about what this means for different aspects of reading. She specifically is concerned that contemplative or deep reading is being lost because what reading digital text is telling us is that students approach it with continuous partial attention. They're looking for something new. They're not giving their whole attention to one thing, It's the idea of multitasking, but it's actually Mm. not tasking anything at all. You're just doing lots of different things and you need lots of stimulation. There's a low boredom threshold. So students aren't getting that deep reading, she calls it, critical thinking skills, contemplative ideas, analogy, inference, they're all being lost. And if you think about the reading circuit, those things were vital for the development of a reading reading circuit. So they're things that we don't really wanna lose because we don't really know what that means for our, for our reading, for, our, for the reading brain of humans. Digital reading has also meant that students have access to an almost infinite amount of information. And whilst this seems like a fabulous idea and everyone can research their heart's content, research is showing that what students are actually doing is seeking out sources that already conform to what they already know. So that background knowledge isn't broadening, in some ways it's narrowing, which Professor Wolf says is once again damaging the development of those more sophisticated reading skills. And I think we've all seen that when someone will go straight to Wikipedia mm. and it might be a fact that they know. So they'll automatically say, oh, what, what's the capital of Australia? Oh, Google it. Don't Google it. Think about it. <laughs> <laughs> Use your background knowledge and go, oh, yeah, no, I remember. Where's Parliament House? That's right. So I think it's it's having the background knowledge to have that really strong semantic part of your circuitry firing is really important. But, but I mean, of course, students are gonna to prefer to read digitally. The most recent research shows is really interesting study where students were given the same text in a digital format and in a print format. And the students all said that they comprehended the text, you know, deeply and preferred reading it digitally. Whereas when you examine their responses to the text, there was the complete opposite. They had much better level of comprehension when they read the print version. So Professor Wolf actually advocates that perhaps we need to teach digital reading skills and print reading skills so that, so that it comes like a code-switching idea, a bilingualism, where students can understand that different modes or or different ways of accessing information, needs a different skill set. So
0: I've came, I have found this absolutely fascinating and wow, what an amazing thing our brain is. Um, if, if this is new to some people or they just, they do want to find out more and discover more things about our, how our brain works, and um, where could you suggest they go to?
1: So, I think a fabulous place to start would be a book from an American academic called Mark Seidenberg. And the book is called Language at the Speed of Sight. Yeah. And he has a website as well, which I think is markseidenberg.com. We can, we can or something. look that up. Yeah. And yeah. he talks about the development of early reading and writing and then brings it through to today's educational context. And I think it's a fabulous book for teachers. Um, to understand why we're doing the things we're doing and also how things are going to change with this new understanding of, of reading. Well, it's not new. When we put our understanding of reading knowledge into practice.
0: Oh, Kate, thank you so much thank for you. agreeing to, to talk to me and have a microphone sitting in front of you. It's <laughs> a bit daunting, I know, but thank you so much. Thank you. Links to those resources and more will be in the podcast notes. Bye for now.